Well, good morning. This is uh, episode 17 of Acts, uh, Becoming the Church, the stories of the first Jesus people. I'm uh, looking forward to spending this time in Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 13 through 52. I'm not going to read all of that, but if you will take your Bible and open it to chapter 13, put your finger on verse 13 of chapter 13. I want to show you a map. On the far right you see Antioch and just inside of that Seleucia and then you can see the arrows as they travel to Salamis and Paphos on Cyprus and then north, or up, to Perga, and up to Antioch, and then over to Iconium, and then to Derby, and then they retrace their route. That's, that's where Paul is. It, a point of interest in the news is uh, where Seleucia is, you see an arrow and then a hash mark right below it. That's about exactly where that plane, that Turkish fighter plane was down. Uh, just off the coast of, of Syria and uh, the cause of great tension even now between Syria and Turkey. But that's, that's right there, just over the water, and that's the whole question is, was the plane over Syrian airspace? Kind of puts things in perspective. Just below is Jerusalem, down here in the right-hand corner. So when you're reading your Bible and you're reading about the Gospels of Jesus, that's kind of where you are. That gives you some orientation as to where we are this morning. So let's look at verse 13 of chapter 13. From Paphos, and you'll recall last Sunday when we were in the first 12 verses of this chapter, uh, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, governed Cyprus from Paphos, that was, that was where he uh, operated. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, that's the region, where uh, John left them to return to Jerusalem. Uh, from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Okay, we'll just stop right there for a moment. Um, now, this is interesting to me. And I think there's a strong connection that we need to see here. Why would Paul and Barnabas and John Mark uh, sail to the mainland, to Perga, and then immediately go right on to Pisidian Antioch? By the way, there are two Antiochs here, and there are more Antiochs in that period of time because when this whole area was controlled by the Seleucids, they were ruled by uh, a bunch of Antiochs. <laughs> so when you're ruled by a bunch of guys named Antiochus or Antioch, everywhere you go planting a new city, you name it after yourself. So this is Pisidian Antioch as opposed to Syrian Antioch. You got it? <laughs> anyway, why did they go to Pisidian Antioch? Why did they go and they travel inland? Well, I think the reason is, is because uh, that is where Sergius Paulus, who governed Cyprus, sent them. 
I think he encouraged them, even probably gave them letters to help them on their way, because he had family in that area, and we know this uh, from historical uh, indications, inscriptions, and other things. He had landed family of considerable influence in the, in the vicinity, and this is where uh, his family uh, had power, property, and prestige. And so uh, I think he sent them there, and it, it's stirring to imagine the proconsul wanted his family to hear about Jesus. Because as you'll recall where we left off in verse 12, uh, he believed, and uh, the teaching of Jesus, uh, probably meaning teaching about Jesus, was uh, validated by what he saw in Paul and what had transpired between Paul and uh, <clears throat> and uh, that other dude, <laughs> Bar Jesus, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> sorry you had to see the real me. <laughs> well, then on, in Pisidian Antioch, they go into the synagogue. So let's pick that up um, on, uh, in verse 14. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Now, after the reading from the law and the prophets. Now, every synagogue service that we know of, and we have lots of information even from deep in antiquity, uh, the service began with the Shema. And that would go back to Deuteronomy 6, 5. Uh, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And it would, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So that's how it opened. Then it would be followed. They would, you know, recite that. Then there would be prayer. And then they would re read selections uh, from the law, it says. Well, the law represents the first five books of the Bible. So starting with Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they would read selections. That's called the law or Torah. And then they would read selections from the prophets. And then there would be an exhortation or encouragement. Okay? So just keep that in mind. It's always at the end. Why is that? I'm at the end. You know, we've already sung. We've already read some scripture. And now it's me. <laughs> well, here, they, the synagogue ruler sent word to them and uh, said, brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God or God-fearers, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. And then, let's jump down to verse 32. And in the meantime, just as he said he chose our fathers, of course, that means Abraham and, and then Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs. And, and of course, then they were led down into Egypt because of famine and then it was there that they were enslaved. And God rose up, raised up Moses. He delivered his people from the land of Egypt, from the slavery under the pharaohs. He, 
He wanted to take them to the promised land. They wandered in the wilderness because of their obdurate hearts. But then he gave them that land, and he exercised, as you read, he exercised supervision and direction of his people. Again and again, it's God did this, did this, did this. And the people asked for a king, and he even gave them a king after he'd given them the judges. And then it says he raised up David. And uh, so let's pick up in verse 32. Uh, We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. In other words, the people he's addressing, he says, I will give you the blessings promised to David. But you see, what he's saying is, is those promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. And then in verse 36, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. That is, he died. He was buried, because you don't bury people who are asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. I lost my place. There it is, verse 37. But the one whom God raised from the dead, there's Jesus, you see, did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified. And everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then he quotes the prophet. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. Now, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. In other words, we like this. Come back. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout... I mean, that was the official invitation. (laughs) You know? Come back. We want to hear more. And then they dismissed... Verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Things haven't changed. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to talk to him. They wanted to ask him questions. So they gather around him. And this is, and then it, this is what it says. Paul and Barnabas talked with them and urged them to continue, to continue in the grace of of God. Now this word continue means to stick with something. To stick with something. To persist, to attach yourself and not let go. In chapter 11 verse 23, 
you recall the situation. Uh, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem heard about what was going on in Antioch of Syria. And uh, lots of people were coming to Christ, even Gentiles. And remember, they sent Barnabas. And this is what Barnabas found. It says, when Barnabas arrived, he saw, the grace, he saw what the grace of God had done. The grace of God had an impact. The grace, of, the grace of God was visible. He saw what was happening where God's grace was at work. And then he says this. He was glad because you get excited about the grace of God. And he encouraged them all to stick with the Lord with all their hearts. Stick with the Lord. Why? Because he is a God of grace. You see the connection? He saw the difference the Lord was making. He saw the grace of God. And he was glad. It made him happy. It didn't, it didn't upset him. It made him happy. And he encouraged those people who had been touched by the grace of God. He says, Stick with the Lord. Don't quit the God of grace. That's the point. Don't quit the God of grace. Don't quit the grace of God. Don't confuse the grace of God with anything else. Don't talk about the grace of God and do something else. Don't live under the grace of God, you know. But in a sense operate as though there were no grace. Jesus' people, Jesus' people stick with the grace of God. You're really going to see that here. I want to talk about grace and I highlight some things. But what happens next week, not in our time, but in Acts 13 time, what happens next week is really a telling experience, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But let me talk a little bit about grace, because this grace is really, when, when in verse 43, when it says, you know, that Paul, talking with these very people who just heard him speak in the synagogue, tells them to stick with grace, that's a summary of the message. That's the message in a, you know, in a nutshell, as they say. And grace is important. In fact, Paul, in Acts chapter 14, the very next chapter, the third verse, he and Barnabas speak courageously for the Lord, and then we're told that the Lord gave witness to the message of His grace. In other words, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not saying, hey, grace is important when it isn't important. It's the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the essence. If you wanted to use a synonym for what God has done in Jesus Christ, it's grace. In fact, it's so important that at the end, at the end of Paul's life, and you know how important it was to him to finish well. You know, he says, I buffet my body that I might not be disqualified. I compete like an athlete. That Right? So at the end of his life, which... Uh, we get a, a sense of, in Acts chapter 20, in fact, he's on his way to, 
Jerusalem, but he, he doesn't think the outcome is going to be very good. Now, he knows that he, that's just his lot in life. That's the Spirit reminds him everywhere he goes that, that he's got to be prepared to face suffering for Jesus Christ. And yet his message is one of grace. You see, grace doesn't necessarily exempt you from hardship or difficulties. But what does Paul say when he talks to these elders and he says, you're never going to see me again. I've got to go. And he talks about the sweetness of their ministry to love together, and he, he reminds them of things that are important for them in his absence. But then he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me of testifying to the good news of God's grace. If, if the gospel is not of grace, it is not good news. It's just old news if it's not of grace. Because the whole operation of this world, life, is based on merit, achievement, competition, outdoing one another, getting ahead at the expense of others, power plays, that's not grace. And when I listen to this message, and I'm sitting there, it's exciting to me. I get energized thinking, what, would it, what must it have been like to hear the gospel for the first time? I mean, it was not unusual when guests were in the synagogue for them to get up and give a, a word of encouragement, what was probably unusual was to have guests in the synagogue. But here they stand up, and uh, you know, you're interested to hear somebody new. And by the way, I imagine sometimes you want to hear somebody new as well. But tough, you're stuck with me for today. So let's get that. Be, be, let's get beyond that. But he stands up and. For the first half of his message, it's business as usual. I mean, it's like, this is good stuff. Oh, man, I love hearing about how God did this for us and how God did that for us. This is good. I love this. We're with you. Yeah, this guy's all right. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, David is the man. David's the king. God's going to bring a Messiah in the name of David. God's going to fulfill his special promise to David in the Messiah. This is where they are. And then Paul goes off in a whole new, di different direction. You see, and it's, it's all, he's, it's you, 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 but all of a sudden he says, in Jesus, something has already happened. You're looking forward to it, but it's already occurred. God brought fulfillment. He brought the Messiah. He raised Jesus from the dead. And all of a sudden, everything changes. I mean, this is like, whoa. And then he does something incredible too. He says, it's not just for us, it's for all. And those are the three things that I want us to appreciate this morning about God's grace. God's grace is for you. God's grace is in Jesus. You cannot separate the grace of God from Jesus. 
And if you add something to Jesus, you're just watering the grace of God down. You don't need to add anything to Jesus. And it's for all. And I'd like us to think and look at this just for a moment. What is grace? I want us to start really basically. Grace is generosity. Grace is is someone's generosity. And it's directed at you. Or it's not your grace. If you're not the recipient of this help, I mean, we could use lots of words for generosity, can't we? We don't have to be stuck on just the word grace, but I want us to understand grace is God's help. It's it's God's favor. It's God's goodness. It's God's blessing. It's but it, when it becomes directed to you, it becomes grace because it's help that you did not earn, that you did not have coming. And the specific thing we'll see here is that God's grace is demonstrated specifically and redemptively to you in Jesus Christ. God's grace, don't ever think that this was the only way God's grace got here. When God created the world and gave you life and everyone else on this planet, I mean, we are wallowing in God's grace. The saddest thing is that we don't see it and we take credit for it his creatures. We even take credit for creating him, which angers me. We've got this whole thing upside down. Grace is generosity. Second thing is that grace goes unrecognized without gratitude. Without gratitude, you don't even have the eyes to see grace. Sometimes we take credit for it as a result. Gratitude is the detector of grace. And it's always a personalizing recognition and acknowledgement. A third thing, grace always changes you. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see God. It changes everything. If it doesn't change us, then we don't see it as a gift, even if it's called a gift. I was reading a book. Uh, I'm almost finished with it now. It's called uh, Exposing Myths About Christianity by Jeffrey Burton Russell, who is a renowned uh, historian, which makes it a very interesting read. But he said something which I think helps us to understand that, that grace changes us. Of course, it's not grace if we take credit for it or we think we deserve it or we're entitled to it. It's only grace if we recognize it as something we don't deserve, someone's generosity, and when we recognize it, that manifests itself as gratitude. Are you tracking with me? Jeffrey Burton Russell said, and I just picked this this quote, quote up a couple days ago, he says, happiness doesn't always produce gratitude. Duh, that is true. I see a lot of people, boy, they get all excited about something that may have gone on today or yesterday or some good, something happened. It doesn't produce gratitude. Happiness does not always produce gratitude, but gratitude always produces happiness. And I believe that's true. 
Because I'll tell you, when you recognize how much the generosity of others and above all and ultimately the generosity of God from whom every good and perfect gift derives, when we recognize that we are the recipients of a lot of help, a lot of generosity, a lot of kindness, a lot of goodness, it lifts your spirit. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see others. It changes the economy. It changes the, the, the value system of your outlook and your life. It really does begin to transform you. The problem is, is it doesn't last long because we live in a very different economy that promotes merit, achievement, competition, comparison, performance, devaluation based on various standards of merit. That's the world we live in. That's the world we operate in. That's our culture. That's our society. That's our system. Now, this is not a political message, so any inferences you may draw, that's on your time and dime. But the point is, grace needs to be significant in our lives. And that's why I think here, in, the, in this message, Paul just keeps saying, you, you, you. Look at, for example, just representatively, I mean, he starts off by talking about them as the Israelite sons of the family of Abraham. But then, like, just in 32, 33, we tell you the good news. This is not a symposium where they're dealing with grace and what God does. Uh, like scientists talk about ast astronomy. Paul is declaring something that I think would just put them on the edge of their chairs. Changing everything. What God promised our ancestors, he says, verse 33, has been fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. This is now, ladies and gentlemen, and we're sitting here today because that message was preached in that time. And it was preached in that time and recorded here in Acts 13 because Jesus was raised from the dead. Grace changes us. The other night, I, 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 I don't have quite the strength I normally do, and I tend, to, I tend to kind of fade sometimes, and I fell asleep. And uh, I woke up, and I guess it was on, like, the Living Channel or something. I think that's it. But anyway, uh, the television show was Undercover Boss. Do you ever watch Undercover Boss? I don't watch it that much, but the premise of the boss is, and I think there's some, you know, we can think about Jesus being sent and Jesus being God and so forth. I mean, in, under, in Undercover Boss, sometimes, as in the case of this particular show I saw, the guy who founded, you know, he created, founded, owns, CEO of this business, he goes undercover, he puts on a disguise, nobody recognizes, and he gets down with the rest of us grunts. 
You know, he works in the kitchen, he works the counter, he loads the trucks, he works in the warehouse. You know, he does all the low-level stuff that entry-level people do. And he sees what life is like, not from the high-rise office, but on the ground where the real people are, so to speak. Okay, so in this show, the guy who's the founder and, and CEO of Baja Fresh goes undercover. And uh, his name is David Kim, Korean, he, and he has this goatee, you know, which really does make him look different. Really, really different. And uh, he's working alongside all these people, and I'm picking up these things, and I realize, because I didn't see the very, very beginning, I go, this guy loves Jesus. This guy really loves Jesus. This guy is really humble. I mean, I'm seeing just the Lord in this guy's life. He listens to people. He's interested in them. Twice in, the, in what I saw, maybe he did it more, but he went out on breaks with co-workers. He was so interested in caring. He prayed with them over needs in their lives. And he was so moved by these, these employees. Now, you've got to remember, he's not working in his hometown So he goes to a church, in this case it was a Baptist church, and he gets on his knees and he prays. And he's praying through tears. And he's talking about his shame. Because he's taken the grace of God for granted. And he's challenging himself before the Lord to do more with the grace of God, which he is so rich in, to help others. I was so deeply touched. I mean, you couldn't help but cry over that because it was so beautiful. Here is this man, so accomplished, author, Baja Fresh, you know, and a man of humility, love, care, and a desire to do more because he realizes God has given him so much. Well, there was one co-worker who's a manager. And what he doesn't know is that Kim goes back to the board and he talks about Jose Manzanares, this manager of one of the Baja Fresh uh, uh, franchises. And uh, he says, uh, I want to give this guy his own franchise. And the board is just flabbergasted. It's like, and one of the board members is so, so shocked by this idea. He says, do you think that's a good idea? He says, I not only want to give him a franchise, I'm going to foot the bill myself, and I'm going to mentor him. I mean, it just reminds me in Christ, it's like we're given a franchise, and the Holy Spirit mentors us. Uh, he sits down across from Jose Manzanares, and Manzanares is sitting there, and then the kid's in shock. Not, he hasn't heard a thing. He's just in shock that the guy he was working with that was under, working under him as the manager in his store is his boss. I mean, can you imagine if you work with somebody on the job, and then maybe a week later there was a sit-down, and there was Jesus So this kid is in shock. It's like, 
And then while he's in shock, his face doesn't change. He's like a stonework. He's looking at the guy. Uh, he's looking at David, and David says, I, and I'm going to give you a franchise, and I'm, I'm going to foot the bill. It's $50,000. He's going to pay that out of his own pocket, and the kid doesn't even change. <laughs> he's just looking just the same, and then very, very slowly, his eyes, which are already wide, start to tear up, and there's this metamorphosis and color starts to come into his face after a, you know, a range for going from shocking comprehension, comprehension, you know, amazement, and then the joy, the joy. And he, you know, David's like, well, you know, and he just hugs David Kim. And I mean, it is a long, strong hug. And then he gets on the phone and he tells others what God has done for him. Actually, it wasn't directly God, was it? But it was the same man who was in the church praying that he could do more with the grace that God had shown him. You see, when grace gets a hold of you, it changes you. It really, really changes you. Grace is offered in Jesus. Uh, I want to just point out two things real quickly because uh, at two key moments, we really, we really see the surprise uh, about Jesus. Um, in verses 22 and 23, which happened to have been m- mentioned a couple of times this morning, uh, David is mentioned as the king who has been given a special promise. David is the focus. He is, as it were, the template for the Messiah. It is because of David's kingship and that he's the king after God's own heart. And the promise, the un, get this, unconditional promise, not conditional promise, not if you keep these commandments, no, an unconditional promise to David. And his kingdom is going to be forever. Well, it's fulfilled in the Messiah. But notice in verse uh, 23, and you have to just listen to me here, because the English translations put it into better English. But there's a surprise, you see, because there's suspense. There's suspense. So let me read it to you as, as in the, the word order in the Greek language, and I assume that we're to understand this is how they would hear Paul, okay? God, he says, verse 23, God from the offspring or seed of this man, Who's this man? That's David, the king. From the offspring of this man, according to God's promise, God brought to Israel the Savior. Now let me just stop you right there. I think right there, some Jews who pay attention would be saying, huh? Because just like he has all through this message used the past tense of what God has done, now in the same tense he says God has brought the Savior. What? Every Jew, you go out to a synagogue, the Messiah has not come. And now Paul says God has brought just as was expected. He is the fulfillment. And so right after he says, 
God has brought to Israel the Savior, punchline, Jesus. And then for the next verses, all the way through verse 37, he is emphasizing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets and that God in Jesus through the resurrection has fulfilled this day for them, for you, 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 he says again. In fact, in verse 38 and 39, he draws out the implications. Look at that, 38 and 39. Through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by this one, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which the law of Moses could not justify you. You know, when Jordan and I, back in the 80s, and I just uh, heard today that um, baseball cards are just, they've really tanked. People, kids are not collecting baseball cards. Now I know the world is coming to an end. (laughs) Back in the 80s, I mean, you would have, you know, 40 baseball card trade shows a year, and, and they're just shriveling, and nobody's coming out. Why? Because of video games. Well, back in the 80s, my son and I, we'd play, you know, we had a little Nintendo, and there was a video game we played called Mario Brothers. How many of you ever played Mario Brothers? Oh, good, a few of you. Well, Mario Brothers is pretty simple. It's these little guys with very springy legs, and (laughs) I mean, they can really jump, and they run, and it's an obstacle course of sorts with, you know, mushrooms and water traps and obstacles and so forth, And, and if you continue to master the, the obstacle course, uh, you get points and awards, and you're somebody. Uh, my son and I, you know, we competed, and um, basically the, the guy who could go further in the, in the course got bragging rights, was superior, a better person. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, I was wondering, you know, I was just thinking, so Jesus is a game changer, obviously, in what Paul is saying. And then the inference is all about grace. We just read that. And then it summarized as grace. And I thought, what if just using the Mario Brothers game, whether you've ever played a video game or not, you can get the idea. What if you were to inject grace into the game? It would be a game changer. You see, because every time you slide off of a mushroom or fall into a water trap or fail to scale some kind of an obstacle, you have to go back. You have to start over. And unless you get better and you accomplish more, and you advance, then you're stuck. No bragging rights. In fact, you're a Mario Brothers chump. (laughs) But if you inject grace into the game, then then when you slide off of a mushroom or you lose your balance and land in a water trap, you just bounce right back up and keep on going. No, that's right. That's the difference grace makes. But I contend that many of us, even though the game has changed, 
We're playing the new game under the old rules. Grace makes all the difference in our lives. We wouldn't be sitting here without it. But a lot of times, we don't stick with grace. Yes, grace is important to us because it has secured my eternal destiny. It's dealt with the issue of my judgment and my eternity. But day to day, oh, I'm playing under the old rules. Sometimes I'm stuck. Sometimes I achieve, and that makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel better than that guy over there. He washed out. He had to go back to the beginning. And that's the way we lead our lives. And you know what? That's a life of defeat and discouragement and a bad attitude. And it's a, it's a life of competition. It's a life of comparison. It's a life in which, you know, we don't praise and rejoice in others. We want to triumph over them. We want to outdo them. We want to be better than them. And that applies even to the way we see our relationship with God because it becomes one of performance. To get God to love us, we've got to do certain things. We've got to make that happen. Philip Yancey in What's So Amazing About Grace, I think, really does put this into perspective. And listen carefully. He says, grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. You just think about that. Do you really believe that? You know, I, f- I found, I-, I know this is true for me, so I may be an exception. I may be in isolation here. But I've, I've been a Christian for 38 years. That's a lot of Christian walking. And a lot of times I didn't feel like I should even go to church. There were times I skipped Bible studies and I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged to the people of God. You know why? Because I felt that God couldn't love me. And do you know why I felt God couldn't love me or use me? Because I felt I had failed God. See, I felt like I had to do certain things to really, and then, and then if I would sit out for two or three days, then, you know, human nature being what it is, you get to feeling better, and, uh, and then you move on. It's just like Mario Brothers. You're penalized. You got to go back to the beginning. You got to start over. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not the way we're to lead our lives. That's not grace. That's just a word. But when you, get the, when you get what grace is all about, it changes everything. It changes the way you see yourself and the way you see God. i got to finish this. He says, and also there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. You should on that. And then there's this. Grace is not about finishing last or first. It's about not counting. When you quit counting, it'll change everything. Let's listen to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. I want to read it to you, and I just want you to listen to it as if God were speaking this to you alone, if it was just you sitting across from Jesus. Because of his great love for you, God, rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ, even when you were dead in your transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. God raised you up with Christ 
and seated you with him in the heavenly realms in order to make clear to one and all for all time the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness, or you could say generosity to you, in Christ Jesus. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith. What is faith? It's taking it to heart. It's personalizing it. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone boast. For you are God's workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which have been prepared in advance for you. Now, that raises up. See, if gamers were playing Mario Brothers and we changed the game to a game of grace, they'd go, what's the point? What's the point if, if when you fall off a mushroom, there's no penalty or there's no competition or there's no comparison and you just keep bouncing up and advancing? They'd lose interest. They don't want to play that game. And I'll bet you wouldn't either unless you have the right purpose and a new purpose. And it's given to us right there in verse 10. We don't often read that. We read 8 and 9 and we quit on 10. How are you going to be able to do good works that God has created for you without grace in your life? Because those good works are a manifestation of the very grace that gives you this purpose. You see, if you get energized and excited about living out the grace of God. You advance. You get past your shortcomings and failings. You just keep marching on. You keep moving on because you have things to do in Christ to show his grace to others, to show his love, his goodness, his forgiveness. That's all of grace. I mean, look, if you're baking a cake, you say, hey, give me this ingredient or this ingredient. Give me the eggs. Give me the sugar. It's all in separate containers. That's not what we're talking about. It's the same reality. God didn't say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a big Jesus cake here. Uh, yeah, give me some grace and a little love. No, see, it's all the same reality, just expressed in different ways. When you and I start living for Jesus Christ, it shows up at home. It shows up in the workplace. Because no longer are we operating like an old Mario Brothers game. We're operating the grace of God, which has been given to us freely. We can't see people different than ourselves. We can't see ourselves the same way any longer. And then in God's grace is offered to all, and we see this in verse 39 and 44 through 52. Envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to us. What happens, they invite them back next week. They come back, and the whole city turns out. It's right there in Acts 13. I mean, everybody comes out, not just the synagogue. I mean, distinguished People show up who are Gentiles. The, the word has gotten out. This guy is talking about stuff that we've not heard before. And they all come out. And the Jews, it says, they are jealous. Some of those who wanted him to come back are now jealous because this isn't just for them anymore. It's for everybody. And you know what? We get that way sometimes in Christ. The Jews thought that they were uh, elect. 
the special objects of God's love. And keeping the law was their way of showing how dedicated they were to him. And now that all seems up for grabs. And they even, it says, blaspheme Paul in the message, which may have had to do with oaths taken in their opposition against Jesus and what they were saying. The powerful thing is, is that the, the Gentiles lapped it up with joy. With joy. And of course, some Jews did too. Not all quit. You know, that really brings up something is this, and I'm going to close. It can test our recognition of grace, not just as a concept or a piece of theology, but day to day. You see, because to stick with grace, you have to stick with the Lord. The world isn't going to teach you about grace. You're not going to see, you know, uh, grace as clearly as you're going to see it in your fellowship with the Lord day in and day out of your life. That's how grace grows in our lives. And when we exercise it and we take it to heart and realize that it's for us. Uh, but sometimes we just, that ownership thing makes it very, very hard. And I just want to close with a, this is from Henry Nguyen, is a prayer. Dear God, I'm so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. It's hard in this world of ownership. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for us. Yeah, after I pray and uh, we start to go on our way, if this morning you want to know more about Jesus or pray with us about anything that's going on, especially if you want to pray about maybe, maybe you've been in the grip of performance and competition and maybe God, that you of God's grace has really struck your heart. You want to pray about that, rejoice in that, let go of some things, open your hand to God. We invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel, for grace. Help us to get it more and more, Lord. May it show up in joy and our outlook and a twinkle in our eye and our love for you and others. In Jesus' name, we praise and thank you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.